All right. Well, good morning. Uh, we're getting started a little early today. Jacob Hantla is going to be teaching us today, and we're going to, he's going to get started pretty promptly at 7.45. He's got a, a kind of a full morning for us. Scott Demarest this morning is teaching over in uh, Wellspring this morning. So for those of you, although I'm looking out, and I, see, I, think I, I think I know everybody here uh, for the most part. So my name is Ben James. I'm one of the deacons at Grace Bible Church. I uh, lead a small group, and I get, get the privilege of being able to serve and build. Um, I, I will pop around from discussion group to discussion group. So sometimes I've dropped in on one of yours, and some of you looked at me like, who is this person sitting in our discussion group? But uh, that's where I'm here. I get, a, I get, a, get the, just the privilege to serve in this ministry and spend a lot of time with the discussion group leaders. And as we prayed for you this morning before we started... Um, but if I can, if you can turn over in your build notebooks to our disciplines, and we're going to look at discipline one this morning, and that is the faithful leader shepherds his heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God. And I'm sure many of us become so familiar with the build disciplines that we start to abbreviate them in our own minds. Right, discipline one, shepherd my heart with God's word. Discipline two, shepherd my home with God's word. D three, shepherd the church with the word of God. And that's good. Right? And those things underscore the centrality that God's word needs to have in our lives, in our homes, and in our ministry. But it's really easy for us to run the risk of believing that since I read God's word today. I, I, sh- I faithfully shepherded my heart. Shepherded my heart. So let's go back and read Discipline 1 again. The faithful leader shepherds his heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God. So what is the goal of Discipline 1? It's worshipful nearness to God. Did I open God's word today? Yes. Good. Did I draw near to the Lord today through his word? Slightly different question. Have you ever drawn near or closer to someone? Have you ever grown in fellowship and relationship with someone when that conversation is one-sided? So did I open God's word today? Yes. Good. Did I worship the Lord today through his word? Did I express my worship to him in prayer when I opened his word? Did I express my love and worship to him in obedience by praying in such a way that heeds what he has said in his word about what prayer ought to look like and how we ought to pray? And this morning, just a reminder that it's possible for us to spend time in God's word, even to enjoy our time in God's word, to learn something from God's word, Maybe even to see how our view of God needs to change, or maybe to see how our life needs to change. But if we're not expressing those things to God in humble, prayerful dependence on the Lord, we're actually missing out on an opportunity to draw near to the Lord in the prayerful worship that he desires. Um, It's easy for us to just evaluate our faithfulness. Is Did I read God's word today? Um, I just encourage you to think through, did I draw near to the Lord today? Um, here are just a couple um, brief categories of things for us to consider about our time in prayer. And the first one is sin. As I, as I read God's word, is there unconfessed sin that I see in my life? 
Because unconfessed sin will hinder nearness to God. So I read God's word. Did I see sin that I need to repent of? Confess that sin to the Lord. Confess your dependence upon him to be able to turn from that sin. Praise. Was I, as I read God's word, was I impressed with who God is? As I read his word, did I see more of him revealed in his word? Express that to him in prayer. Am I reminded of what God has done in creation? Praise him for it. Am I reminded about what Christ has accomplished me at the cross? Thank him for it. Over and over and over again, we see the psalmists expressing their trust, their love, and their dependence upon the Lord. Do, do I communicate those things to the Lord as I, as I have my word open, as I have his word open before me? Do I express my faith in him? Do I express my trust in him and in his word? Lord, how I love your law. The song, you'll, you'll hear the psalmist say over and over again as we're reading through Psalm 119 with the men in our small group. Um, do, do, I, do I communicate that to the Lord? I read it, but do I, do I communicate that? Do I express that as I would express it to my wife or someone in my home that I have a relationship with? That's a two-sided relationship. Lord, I trust in you. Um, and then dependence and supplication. Did I bring my needs before him? Did I, did I bring the needs of others before him? Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he knows our needs before we ever communicate them to him. He knows what our brother needs, our sister, our wife, our children. He knows what they need, even if we don't say it. But God is pleased and worshipped by our humble acknowledgement of that need. And our recognition that he alone is the one that's able to supply those needs. He is God and we are not. He is sovereign. We are not. Do we, do we stand and recognize that and express that to him? Is, is, is our timing God's word a just that, timing God's word where we're checking off the box? Or are we coming to God's word and responding to what we have read in prayerful worship to him? Um, so just, I, I know from my own life, it's really easy just for me to just, I'm going to take a spiritual inventory and I'm like, oh, yep, I've been reading God's word lately. Um, and yet I might be missing my own spiritual condition because is there, is there hardness of heart? Is God's word actually being, having a transformative effect in my heart and informing what I do and informing my worship? Um, am I drawing near to the Lord? So just to, as we think about the build disciplines, as you think about you know, what I'm setting about each day and each morning, um, am I drawing near to the Lord? Uh, the next time I lead our discipline discussion, I really want to talk about ways that we can intentionally incorporate God's word into our prayer as we draw near before him. It's so sweet to see all of you here this morning. Um, for those who don't know, I think everybody does. My name is Jacob Hantman. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Grace and the opportunity to share, to teach from Proverbs 4.23. We've been doing this for years as part of Build and Wellspring, and it is probably one of the highlights of my career, of my time as a, uh, a pastor elder here for, because the effect that this has on my own heart. So I, I know a number of you have heard this already, 
um, are familiar with these things. It's my prayer as we get started, just that familiarity wouldn't breed complacency in your heart or mine. And for those who are unfamiliar with what we're going to cover, I just I, it is my prayer that today would be the message from Proverbs 4.23 and from all of Scripture would be an opportunity to truly um, orient your heart around this heart-guarding command that the Bible says has to be done above all else, with all vigilance. So before we jump in, let's, let's pray. God, I beg that as we have your word open in front of us, as I speak, as I seek to expose the truth of your word, I beg that you would guard and guide my words. I beg that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and cause us to worship you. God, I pray that you would grant us understanding by your spirit. And Holy Spirit, please grant my heart, the heart of my hearers, a submissive posture before you as we approach your word. These words contained in scripture are your words, and they can come with the same power that when spoken brought everything into existence. Words more powerful than we can comprehend. So God, I beg that my words would be faithful to your words. And it would ultimately be, if there is any transformation, it would be transformation by your spirit. And God, I just have the privilege to be your vehicle. So God, please use this message to make me guard my heart more diligently. To make Grace Bible Church, and especially the men sitting here, guard their hearts more diligently. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so look down in your Bibles at Proverbs 4.23. It is an incredibly simple and yet profound passage that teaches a profound and simple truth. Uh, you're going to be better equipped if you arm your heart with this to pursue God and fight sin. You'll be better equipped to shepherd your own hearts, your own homes, your own ministry. So you in Proverbs 4.23, says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. There's three parts to this verse. You'll have it memorized very soon if you don't already. And I want you to memorize and understanding the layout, understanding the form, what this verse contains. It contains a what, a why, and a how. So look at your Bible. Identify those parts with me. There's a what. So the what is keep your heart or watch over your heart, guard your heart. It's a command. There is a how with all vigilance, above all else, with all diligence, a modifier of that what, a modifier of that command telling you how to do it. And then there's a simple why. The reason given that you must guard your heart above all else is because from your heart flow the springs of life. Your heart is the source of your life. Your heart is the wellspring of your life. 
It's really easy to understand the layout of this verse. There's a what, a how, and a why. So we're going to start today. We're going to work our way backwards. We're going to start with the why of the command and then work our way to the, the how and the what. So the why, the reason that we must guard our hearts, watch our hearts above all else with all vigilance is because your heart is the well or the source from which all behaviors, all everything that would flow from your, your life spring. Have you ever sinned and thought, where did that come from? That seems foreign to me. It almost feels like somebody else. Where, where did that action, that sin come from? Well, you know the answer. It came from your heart. The words that come out of your mouth, the thoughts that enter your head, came not from outside of you. You can't blame those on circumstances, other people, temptations. They flow from your heart, the most inner you. Take the flip side. Christian, when you endure in trial, when you love your neighbor as yourself, when you respond to any circumstance in a way that glorifies God, makes much of him, seeks to honor him rather than yourself, where did that come from? Likewise, that came from your heart. Sins and fruit of the Spirit Indeed, everything you do, good or bad, every action, thought, deed, or word, everything that is you, that flows out of you, came from your heart. Um, and so we need to understand the Christian life is not about behavior modification, but heart change. Heart change, heart guarding. And Proverbs 4.23 will help us get at the root of sins, help us recognize the root of God-glorifying behavior, and then prepare us for the great gospel solution to the heart, to the problem uh, that, that we all face as humans, and guide us towards uh, the gospel-grounded solution to help you walk in purity of life. So the inspired Solomon, he gives a profound illustration for your life. You ought to think of everything you do, think, say as water flowing from a well. All that you do has a common source from which it flows, your heart. And so that leads to a, a pretty profound, simple, but profound conclusion. There is no part of the way that you live if the heart is the wellspring of your life, there's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Or put it another way, there's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. There's another corollary to that. The character of your life reveals the nature of your heart. There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. There's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. And the character of your life reveals the nature of your heart. So this, the image here, the illustration that would jump to, or 
Hebrew reader's mind and should jump into our mind is a city's vital water source. We're sometimes disconnected from where our water came from. Uh, cities in this day and age, and really through most of humanity's time here on earth, would be vitally aware of where their water came from. Pure water at the source would provide everyone in the city with pure water. But if the source is contaminated, the city could have no hope for pure water. And for the Christian, well, really for all of humanity, somebody who recognizes this truth that who you are, what you do, I guess what you do flows from the heart, uh, this is a pretty significant problem. Because the Bible describes our natural heart source, our natural heart, our life source, in some pretty unflattering terms. So this is at the top of page two, or the back side of your first page on the notes. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then consider, open your Bibles to Genesis 6, 5. I want, to, I want you to see this for yourself with the Bibles on your lap. Consider God's assessment of humanity at this point. Genesis 6, 5. Very beginning of your Bible. This is God's assessment of the natural human heart. Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. That, if you're into underlining your Bible, you might want to underline here. God's assessment of the natural human heart was that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. And the flood did not fix the human heart. That description of man's heart is only evil continually. The intentions of the heart applies to every human, every born, ever born but one. That is the heart that you're born with. So there is, if there is no part of your life that doesn't flow from this wellspring, and this wellspring is deceitful, desperately sick, and that the intention level is only evil continually, based on Proverbs 4.23, what would you expect to come from a man, a person, with this evil life source? Well, a poisoned well produces poisoned water. A wicked, unrighteous heart produces wicked, unrighteous actions. And always consistent with itself and the truth, this is exactly what we find God's assessment of mankind is. Right? If you just do some logical math, Genesis 6, 5, the intention of man's heart was only evil continually. And you add that to Proverbs 4, 23, the heart is the wellspring of your life. You get the conclusion that Romans 3, 10 through 12, quoted in Psalm 14, 1 through 3 has. None is righteous, not even one, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Naturally, no one has a good heart. Not even one. And, and telling somebody with an evil heart, do good deeds. Glorify God from your heart. That's going to be as futile as telling a dead person in a grave, get up and live. It's impossible. A poisoned well will only produce poisoned water. You can't go to a poisoned well and say, hey, can you, can you give me some pure water? And you can't go to a evil from the heart person and say, can you give me a pure life? Just live holy. No one naturally has a good heart and no one, not even one, does good naturally before God. As humanity, we are a bunch of wicked people with unrighteous lives. Why? Because we have wicked hearts naturally. This is the description of unregenerate man living in the unmixed sinful condition. Every one of you was there at one time. There may be someone here who is still there. I want you to soberly consider if that's you as we go through this lesson. Speaking of the new covenant with Israel that Christian Gentiles get to enjoy as well, we learn that God doesn't leave the Christian in this position. God does not leave his children in this position with the wicked, only evil, continually hearts that we were all born with. God says in Ezekiel 36, 26, again, speaking to Israel, but of a covenant that we get to enjoy as well. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised Israel that effectively he would give them a heart transplant, take out their natural hearts and give them a heart that was foreign to them. And what would be the result when they did that? They would know God. They would, from the heart, honor God. They wouldn't look to a law source outside themselves, but they would have a want to glorify God and know his commands from the heart kind of heart given to them. A heart that's foreign to themselves, that they couldn't create themselves. It's a heart transplant. It's a new heart. And this hasn't happened yet for all of Israel, but it is what God does to a Christian when he saves them. What vivid imagery this language of a heart transplant is. And it's sweet for me in particular. I, I have what I think is about the best job in the world, which is anesthesia and cardiac anesthesia at that. So every day I get to see just how important a healthy physical heart is 
Um, and it's sobering to see what happens to our body. But I, it's sort of cool, the, the language that God chose of the heart as the wellspring of your life, as the source of your life, your spiritual heart. And you correlate that to, to what we see in a, a natural physical heart. The correlations are not all one-to-one, -one, but in this case, it's pretty vivid. When somebody's heart, physical heart, fails, whether it's through having a heart attack, ischemic cardiomyopathy, maybe viral, uh, a number of disease processes that can render your heart, your physical heart, actually sort of like stone. Uh, it doesn't stretch what, like a normal healthy heart does when the blood comes in. It doesn't squeeze vigorously. The blood becomes stagnant. Your cardiac output drops. What's the effect on your organs? Well, kidneys die, brain suffers. Um, muscles don't get the blood flow, the energy, the oxygen, the nutrients that they need. The body begins to look like the heart, dead. Eventually it will lead to death, but in the process, there is um, cognitive deterioration, lungs filled with fluids, kidneys shut down, muscles refuse to work, a body that is incapacitated in weakness and lethargy. And what's so cool is when you give that person a heart transplant, a physical heart transplant, this stony heart is removed and given a healthy heart, the person becomes literally like a new person. Dying organs are rejuvenated by renewed blood flow, a slow mind quickens, and a body that was filled with death looks like life. Obviously, this is just an illustration, and not even the one that the original readers would have even been able to have in mind, but, but we, for me, it's just, it's so powerful and I think consistent with, with what God does when he gives us that new heart. If the heart is the wellspring of your life and everything that you do flows from that life, if you have a dead, a, a wicked heart full of poison, death, you see what you see out in the world. A humanity in rebellion to God where no one does good. And Christian, you had this dead heart of stone and God gave you a new flesh, a new heart. Christian, when he saved you, he took out your old dead heart and replaced it with a new one. And that's why you were born again. You're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. At regeneration, God declared us righteous. Justification. And then he changed us from the heart. So that from, for the first time, we would have the ability to obey God and love God from the heart. We still live in a mixed condition, right? We still have our sinful flesh. We're still able to sin. But compare that to the unmixed condition. You now have a new heart. And for the first time, and only because of this new heart, you're able not to sin. You're able to please God. You're able to shepherd your heart from sin into God. Right? Discipline one, shepherd your heart, guard your heart. That's foolish talk for somebody who doesn't have this new one. Yes? Yeah, thank you.
without the new heart, shepherding your heart, is futile and foolish. It's like saying guard a, guard a well full of poison as if that will make a difference in the output. But with this new heart, for the first time, you're able not to sin. You're able to please God and you're able to shepherd your heart from sin to God. We used to be slaves to sin because our heart was sinful. We used to be disobedient from the heart. But Romans 6, 17, we're now at the bottom of page two. You may want to open to this in your own Bibles and worship. Romans 6, 17 tells us what God has done. It says, thanks be to God. Such an appropriate start. Thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become what? Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, right? Because a wicked heart could only sin. No, nobody does good. Now you've been set free from sin and you've become a slave to righteousness. I love what John Flavel, in the 17th century Puritan, top of page three, he said it well. He said, the heart of man is his worst part before salvation. It's his best part after it. Praise and thank God for that. Seriously, stop right now. This is what Paul said as he considered this. He just said, thanks be to God. He couldn't declare this truth without giving God thanks, without giving God glory. Thanks be to God that you, who were once slave to sins, slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart. For many, this might seem like old news, right? A theological truth with which you are familiar. Yeah, I have a new heart. I'm a new creature. I'm no longer in this unmixed condition. I'm in a, a mixed room. I can glorify God. Good. I know that. Don't respond like that. Theology is not just something to know. Up here, something to know in your heart, in your affections. And if the glory of the, this work of this heart-changing, heart-replacing work of the gospel, if it just, if you are familiar with it in a way that breeds complacency and lack of response, that is such a dangerous place. We oftentimes aren't thankful like we should be for the things that we're familiar with. MacArthur has said it well. I'm not sure if this is his or he got it from someone else, but he said this, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So before this glorious truth of the gospel, fight today and every day that as you sit under the blazing hot magnificent truths of God's word, that your heart will be soft wax, melting before its radiance instead of hard clay hardened by familiarity. Right? There's lots of people over the ages who could write a doctoral dissertation on what is the gospel. Be able to explain its truths 
sit in comfortable familiarity dissecting sentences. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the gospel. You don't have to be a Christian to understand who God is. But only Christians will respond to this saying, that is wisdom and power of God. Praise be to God and worship. Don't, don't ever let yourself fight to never let yourself hear truth about God and not respond in worship and thanksgiving. Proverbs 4.23 told us that the heart is the wellspring of our lives, and that would be horrible news if not for this great news, the gospel, that when God changes us, he saves us from our very hearts and changes you and me from the core of who you are. If you are a Christian, you have been changed from your wellspring, from your heart. Let everything else that you learn today, everything you resolve to do today, sit under the shadow of that massive truth of the gospel. If anything good comes out of your life, it came from this new heart that was only given to you by grace, through faith, as a gift from God. I'm sorry about this mic. Should I go to the podium? I'll just, I'll keep going on this for now. So Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, just to help you, this is a, a quote on the top of page three. I know these quotes, especially from Puritans, are sometimes hard to hear, easier to read. He wisely advised his church, till the spirit has regenerated the soul, all outward religion, that is effort at doing good things, effort at cleaning yourself up, trying to please the Lord through actions, all outward religion will be but a dead and pitiful thing. To make up a religion of doing or saying something that's good while the heart is void of the spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace is a hypocrite's religion. But praise God, he has no interest in this kind of religion. Through the gospel, by Jesus' work at the cross, God gives us new hearts. Romans 6.17, right? But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. If you're not a Christian, if this is foreign to you, if you've never experienced heart change, this once for all heart change that represents God saving you, that reflects God saving you, repent of your sins and trust in God to forgive you those sins and to cleanse you from the heart, to give you a new heart free to love him. You can't effort this, right? You can't try hard enough, discipline yourself enough to change your heart. To do so is like letting poison run through the pipes in your home and thinking because you, you know, clean the outside of the pipe, the inside is is going to be clean. It's not going to happen. You will be a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. Christian, your heart is precious. Not only because it's the source from which your life flows, but because it was made new in the gospel. 
You were a slave to sin. That's true. We were slaves to sin because our heart was sinful. And now you're a slave to righteousness because God changed you from the heart. So just imagine that illustration of the city that this points to. A city with a poison well. The city would not flourish, right? Just like the person with heart failure, their body looks like death. That city could not flourish. In fact, the city would be full of death. And then one day a king came in, dug a new well, provided clean water miraculously, a new wellspring. Their old well was full of poison. The new one, for the first time, had fresh, pure water. What would be the results in that city? The city would be new, full of life, not death. Those who were once weak, anemic, dying from poison, would have a taste of that which they never knew, pure water. Those people would know the importance of the wellspring. Right? If you've only ever tasted poisoned water, you might not know how precious, pure, clean water is. Those people would know the importance of the wellspring. They would know the effects of a tainted well, and they would know the joy of purity. Those people would know the importance of a pure water source. And do you know it would probably never enter those people's mind? The question, I wonder how much poison we could put back in this wellspring and still be okay. No, they would guard that well if they were wise. They would guard it with all vigilance because they would know that their very lives depended on it. Christian, we are those people. Our hearts were unmixed in sinfulness and at salvation for the first time we could glorify God from the heart. So guard your heart. In light of this, consider the quote from Charles Spurgeon, top of page three, as I read. And look for the implications of this truth on not only heart guarding, discipline one, but also home guarding, discipline two, ministry guarding, discipline three. Charles Spurgeon writes, the poison of the soul is only sin. And this is like poison in many respects. Poison, wherever it enters, it infects all. Or sorry, it, wherever it enters stays not there, but diffuses itself all over the body and never ceases till it has infected all. Such is the nature of sin. Enter where it will, it creeps from one member of the body to another and from body to the soul till it has infected the whole man. And then from man to man, the whole family and stays not there but runs like a wildfire from family to family till it has poisoned a whole town and so a whole country and a whole kingdom woeful experience proves this true the poison of sin won't stay in your heart only it will seek to destroy you but then it will seek to destroy your home and then your ministry maybe ministry in your small group to your friends and unchecked it will dis- seek to destroy the church right a little leaven leavens the whole lump what poison 
are you dabbling with? Seriously, stop and consider your own life, your own heart, what you do, what practices you have, what entertainment choices you make, what you choose to allow into your heart. What poison are you dabbling with? Remember purity. Long for it. Don't stop at anything to guard your wellspring. For the sake of your life, for the sake of your home, your kids, your wife, your roommates, and for the sake of your church, for the glory of God, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So the truth, we've already gotten ahead of ourselves a little bit, right? The truth that the heart is the wellspring of your life, that naturally flows into Solomon's command, right? He could have just said, your heart is the wellspring of your life and left us, if we think about it, to say, all right, well, I better guard that among, above all else. But he made that command explicit. Because the heart is the wellspring of your life, guard it. The what at the beginning of Proverbs 4.23 flows very obviously from the why. Guard your heart. Sin is the poison. Purity is to be protected. So guard your heart. Notice with me that as Solomon is speaking to his son, he gives this instruction as a command. Guard is an imperative this is not optional, and it's not passive, it's active. The word used here for guard, watch, keep, it's the same as is used elsewhere to describe an alert sentry in a watchtower when a city, a nation guarded something from enemies, they would build a watchtower and they would assign a specific man or men a specific task. And that task would be to watch, to guard, watch the road, watch over the fruit and the, the villages, watch over the hillside. And they would do it to guard their most valuable resources, particularly when those were in danger from an enemy. A city dependent on a pure water source would obviously place those watchtowers and sentries around the spring to protect the purity of water. Because the best way, the best way to destroy the city, to conquer the city, would be to capture the water source would be to poison the water source or somehow to affect the water flowing from that source. So a city at war would especially have guards always on watch, knowing that a very real threat could appear at any moment. We have a preciously new water source with ever-present threats seeking to poison the well. So we must guard our hearts the question then would be, well, how are we supposed to guard our hearts? Right? You might already have some good conclusions, some good to-dos in light of this illustration and the question, what sin are you dabbling with? But what I appreciate so much is the Bible doesn't leave us merely to guess, well, here's how I must guard it. There's lots of places I could go to answer this, but I think the clearest and best and probably most tied to context of, of Solomon, where did he learn this stuff? Well, probably from his dad. Certainly inspired as he's speaking God's word. But consider David, the man after God's own heart. Um, he actually 
answers the question, well, how do we guard? In Psalm 119, verse 9, the question is asked, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, in light of what we've said, well, if your way is going to be pure, what also must be pure? The source from which that way flows. How can a young man keep his way pure? Let's see how David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, answers that question. He says, by guarding it according to your word, with my whole heart I seek you, Yahweh. Let me not wander from your commandments. So how did David guard his heart? Well, he guarded it with God's word to a point of obedience. David guarded his heart fundamentally by seeking God through his word. As you guard your heart, you must be protecting it from evil, not wandering from his commandments. You'll be careful who and what you allow close. You'll be careful to fight um, temptation, to not think that your heart can tolerate just a little bit of evil. You will protect your heart from exposure to things that would poison the wellspring. But we see even more important and more fundamental to the guarding of your heart isn't just what you keep out. It must include that. It isn't just what you keep out, but what you keep in. Seek God with all your heart. As we guard the wellspring of our heart, we must shepherd our hearts to the word of God to get the God of the word. In your guarding your heart, make sure that you are not shepherding it to pharisaical behavior-focused religion that just seeks to sin a little bit less, especially in the eyes of men, without consideration and without desire to seek God. That's pharisaical behavior-focused religion. It's sort of like where Jesus said, be careful if you cast the demon out and you get your, get it, get your heart all cleaned up but you don't actually pursue God if the Holy Spirit doesn't come in to seek residence, well, the demon's just going to come back and, and bring all his friends. More important and more fundamental to guarding your heart isn't just what you keep out. It isn't merely saying, I need to sin less, but what you keep in saying, I need to pursue God. Seek God with my whole heart. As Sorry. So let's, I think the ultimate illustration, um, let's look at the New Testament's illustration to David's heart purifying God seeking uh, that, that he refers to in Psalm 119. Open your Bibles to 1 John 3, 2 through 3 with me. And what I appreciate about John here is he, I think seeing, he, he said earlier in this book, that these things are written so that you might not sin. The goal and the standard of, of the Christian is, is not sinning. So sweet is right before that is if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
but you might be hearing this new heart talk. My heart is the best part of me now. God's changed my heart. When he makes you his child, he gives you a heart like his so that you can be in some measure like Christ. And you might hear that and be discouraged. Yeah, I see some good stuff in my heart. I, I want to seek God. I, for the first time, I, I see the difference after God saved me. Oh, but there's so much sin left. It's overwhelming. I, I love how John starts this. He says, Beloved, you are God's children now. And if you're God's child, he didn't just legally adopt you. But part of changing you from the heart is actually to make you sons like him. We could, I think we could have a whole other lesson on that. It's That truth is so sweet in scripture. You are God's children now. And you actually, to some degree, have a nature like his, a, a desire and an ability to honor and glorify him from the heart. But what we will be hasn't yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we'll see him as he is. And not just you, but everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, God has changed you. He has made you his child. And this change of nature, although drastic, is not yet complete. What will be has not yet appeared. One day, when we see God as he is, in a moment, we will be made to look completely like him. This flesh that so easily entangles, which is so easily contaminated, will be removed. And it will be pure, even as God is pure. But this passage doesn't merely make us give up hope of purity now and wait for, and, uh, wait for that day. No, this passage gives us hope. Psalm 119.9 gives us hope that we are God's children and purification is possible. How? Well, let me first ask you, how will purity come? And look down at the verse to answer it. How will purity come on the day that Jesus returns? What's the means? Right, right now, God puts trials in our lives, uses lo lots of means to accomplish sanctification, growing in holiness. But when he appears, glorification, complete attainment of the holiness. We will go into another unmixed condition, one in which we cannot sin. We're in the mixed condition now. What's the means of God accomplishing that unmixed condition? Pure, as he is pure. We'll look down at the text. What's the answer? We will see God as he is. And where does God most clearly reveal himself as he is now? Right, David? I will guard my heart according by by guarding it according to your word. Where do we see God most clearly as he is? God will ultimately accomplish glorification, but his means of sanctification are not dissimilar. Seek God, gaze upon God, with the goal of not wandering from his commandments and seeking, honoring him. 
God most clearly reveals himself to us now in his word. So just as David keeps his way pure by seeking God in his word, the New Testament Christian is to hope on God, fixing the gaze of your heart on him as we look for him revealed in his word. As we hope in him and flee heart-contaminating sin, which these the verses that follow this say, right? It's not merely enough to open your Bible and read about God and think this process of sanctification is passive, just going to naturally happen. But if you seek God's law and miss seeking God, if you seek to learn God's rules, but miss that the goal of that is to honor him, right? Without holiness, what's the ultimate aim of holiness? Hebrews 12 says it. God's purpose in disciplining us towards holiness is so that we would be holy, because without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. And when we see the Lord, we are made holy. Guarding your heart isn't merely keeping sin out, but more fundamentally, it is about seeking God what you keep in. As we hope in him, we are purified more and more into what we shall be as glorified children of God when he returns. Do you get this? The means of pursuing and guarding daily the purity of your heart and the means of our ultimate heart purification are not dissimilar. A purity of God, or, or a pursuit of God by setting the gaze of our hearts and one day our eyes on him, that's the means. Today, that's primarily in his word, and one day it will be face to face. None of this is, a, is possible apart from that heart change and the Holy Spirit. And I cannot wait for that day. But by God's grace, we don't have to wait to pursue purity. Do you see, though, how important it is to flee sin and to fix the gaze of your heart, hopefully, on God and his word. And so think of the implications of that on your time in God's word. What do you seek to accomplish when you sit down and open God's word? First, you must actually sit down and open God's word. If God is going to be revealed most clearly in his word, the means of David, we, we know inspired in scripture, the means of David's heart guarding is to guard it according to his word. This isn't going to be impossible without actually exposing your heart to God's word. But as you open God's word, it is easy to miss this goal of actually pursuing God in his word to say, God, as you reveal your law, as you reveal what you require, you're not merely revealing rules, a standard. You're revealing yourself, your desires. As I read about Jesus in his life, I'm not merely reading story. I'm not merely learning theology. God is revealing himself. And this is the means and goal of heart guarding, of pursuing his purity of life. So when you open your Bible, I have a, a practice that I've done for I don't know, 15, maybe almost 20 years that 
my goal when I read. This isn't the only goal. But I, I must not get up out of my chair until I can answer the question, what did this text reveal to me about God? And how must this affect me? And then you don't merely say, okay, I learned something about God today. Good, I got a to-do, I got an application. But like I said earlier, worship. Don't let theology breed familiarity that isn't, that doesn't have worship closely coupled to it. What God's word reveals sin, for his glory, repent and pursue holiness as you pursue the Lord. Where it reveals that God is actually working in your heart, give him praise because he gave you that new heart. Where God reveals something about who he is and you see more clearly God as he is, think of 1 John 3, 3. Marvel, worship, fall down on your knees. That's what you will do when you see God as he is. Don't get comfortable with theological truths without theological truths without knowing this is actually the God of the universe. Gave his son for you, who adopted you as his child. Don't say those things, don't think those things without having the proper heart response. And when your heart isn't moved like it should, because it won't be, we're in this mixed condition. Repent even of that and ask God by his spirit to cause you to worship. So on to the next point, the last point of Proverbs, where we've talked about the why, we've talked about the what. The why is, well, the heart's the wellspring. And for the Christian, God's giving you a new one. The how, or the, the what, is guarded. And now the how. How are you supposed to guard this? Well, above all else, with all diligence, with all vigilance, we have a new heart with new love and affection for God. But the flesh within, Satan and temptations without, are constantly assaulting the heart, seeking to taint it with sin. So set up a guard for your heart by above all else not being content to let even an ounce of sin in. Remember the, the city with the new wellspring that knows afresh, knows for the first time the joys of purity and can contrast that with the death that comes from a poisoned well. They're not going to ask how much sin can I still let in or how much poison can I let in and still be okay. Christian, don't be content to dabble with sin. God's given you a new heart where for the first time you can glorify God from the heart. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. You're no longer a slave to sin, you're a slave to righteousness. You're no longer a child of sin destined for wrath, but you're a child of God destined for all that comes with that adoption. Best of all, God himself. So rather we guard our hearts by seeking God with our whole heart through his word. All the time. Every day. No higher priorities. No days off. I'll tell you what. In my life, this is probably yours. 
I mean, if you can think about maybe a, a soldier at war, or maybe just you trying to pursue good disciplines, good habits, right? Think about last time you started a good diet, started an exercise program. Um, you didn't fail all at once. You fail through small, little, seemingly insignificant compromises. You're on a path towards a good place. Christian, you're on a path towards holiness. You get off the path just a little bit. Get off the path a little bit more. Get off the path a little bit more. Over enough time, those paths diverge and you're nowhere near where you were aiming when you started. And you're like, how did I get here? How did I fail? Right? If a soldier's disciplining his body, disciplining his missions for accomplishing the goal, he has to every day, all the time, realign the trajectory of his life, what he's aiming at, the, the, the watchman on the tower. If he shows up and is like, well, yesterday there was no trouble, maybe I'm going to play cards, or you know, today you see security guards sitting on their phone while you know, they're not watching the monitors. You're like, you get more and more and more comfortable with compromise. Christian, you can get more and more and more comfortable with compromise if you don't guard your heart vigilantly above all else no higher priorities no days off what does the united states do for its most important assets well norad is a good example it's the north american aerospace defense command it's placed deep within the cheyenne mountains surrounded by at least 2,000 feet of granite on every side, enclosed by thick blast doors, blast valves, and has its own multi-million dollar or gallon water supply with a multitude of sensors assessing for any and every threat to its own security and the security of our nation. Well, we're like, okay, we have something that's really important. If this thing goes down in war, we're in trouble. And so we guard it with a lot of vigilance. We have a lot of people that we pay a lot of money to always be on guard. Christian, you have something way more precious than NORAD, right? The city in the wilderness or in the Judean countryside, we, we said this, this word guard is used elsewhere in scripture of that. They, if they would have a water source or they would have one way through the walls of the city and they knew they were at war, you wouldn't take time off to not guard that place, to not guard that water, to not guard that entrance. Christian, don't take time off. Say, oh, I guarded my heart this morning. I opened God's word. I read it. I'm good throughout the day. I'll just uh, waste time. YouTube pops up or you're on social media and on those clips, the TikTok things of foolishness that titillate your... Um, fleshly desires. I have a few minutes. I'll just flip through that. It doesn't look too bad. What are you doing? Are you guarding your heart above all else with all vigilance at that moment? Or are you content to pursue foolish, silly triviality? Well, I'm not singing. What are you doing with your wellspring? 
little compromise, and then you have one pop up that's, well, yeah, that's sin, but it's not a big one. And your guard has been down. For the last 10 TikToks, your guard was down, increasingly so. And now you're watching something you wouldn't have even considered just three minutes ago. And that sets you down a path of now five minutes in, maybe you're flipping to another app and you've, you've spent in, in three to five minutes, your heart has fallen to a place that five minutes ago on the tail end of time in the word, you would have never considered being. in your head deep in sin. That can happen to your heart with three minutes of no vigilance. 30 seconds of no vigilance. It's going to happen with a lifetime of little compromises. Christian, God's given you a new heart with the opportunity to be pure. Everything you do, everything you think, everything you say, the life to which God called you to be holy flows from that wellspring. And the command is above all else, with all vigilance, with all diligence, guard it. No compromise. No days off. We can't see the guarding of our heart as just one task above, among many. Solomon commands us that the way we must guard our heart is with all vigilance above all else. And when God, through his word, commands you to do something above all else or with all vigilance, we ought to listen and take that thing seriously. So we can't view heart guarding as something we do and then go live life. Guarding your heart is something you must do in all of life. And remember, we're not just guarding our hearts from sin but to God. And each thing that you face, each decision that you face, God, what would please you? God, what would make me better capable to honor you? God, in this decision that seemingly might, might even be morally neutral, which of these decisions, which, which of these options would most align with pursuit of you. And do that for the sake of your heart and the glory of God who gave you this new heart. Walk in a manner worthy of the holy calling that you've received. This isn't a suggestion. It's not something that would be good to do in addition to all the things that we do. No, you must guard your heart. You must view guarding your heart as the most important task of your life. And it must be done with all of life. And as we think of the need to diligently guard our hearts, consider the one who wrote this book of Proverbs. And this command, Solomon. You may have been asking questions every time I say, this is Solomon writing this. Man, the outcome of his life didn't, didn't look so good. Surely he knew the fact that if a life is to be pure and holy unto God, the source had to be pure as well. He wrote it. He saw his dad. He saw some pretty grotesque examples in his siblings of the 
result of a heart guarded to God, a man after God's own heart, and then others who abandoned God in seeking to please him. Heart turning is a slow, incremental process often. It's rare that you would be defeated in battle decisively once and for all. One battle, fail, and you're done. No, the, the enemy, and if you think of the people in your life where at one time it appeared that they had a robust faith, and then over time, they wandered, and now they're someplace that they never could have imagined. That didn't happen all at once. It rarely happens all at once. And if it's going to happen to you, it won't happen all at once. It'll likely happen through small, incremental compromises that built up over time. You end up in a place you never imagined you could be, never imagined you would be, looking like someone you never imagined you would possibly look like. Right? The Christian will persevere to the end if you're a Christian. But how do you know if you're a Christian? Because you persevere. Guarding your heart daily, diligently, vigilantly, above all else, guarding it from sin to God is actually what persevering in the faith, proving your predestination is. You don't earn it, right? You can't say, oh, I want to earn this salvation you gave me. I'm going to guard my heart as if I'm earning it with this, as if the good works that come out of heart guarding somehow earned the status as a child. No, you guard your heart to live consistent with the life that God's called you to as his child and to live really in a manner worthy of this calling of holiness. Back to Solomon. Being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding isn't sufficient. I see lots of heads going up and down, and you're probably really excited about guarding your heart now, and we're, you're in build. You know what discipline one is. Guard your heart. Shepherd your heart. You're like, yes, I, I use that language. When I go to small group, I ask my friends, how are you, how are you guarding your heart? How are you shepherding your heart? I, I ask my wife all the time. She asks me, my roommates, this is what we, this is what we talk about. Well, let, let me warn you. Being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding is not sufficient. Neither is agreeing with Solomon regarding this verse. That doesn't automatically mean that you're doing it. Turn to 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. And I would encourage you when you go home to read 1 Kings 1 through 10. You have Solomon making some amazing choices, pursuing the right thing, wisdom at the beginning. Of his reign. He's humble. He wants to honor God. And you see, just you, you're hearing the story of the reigning. And just look, and you'll see these little one verse snippets of compromise. Oh, he married the Egyptian and built a place for her to worship. And then he married all these other women and built places for them to worship. And he didn't tear down. The, the idols. Oh, and 
he actually went against commands for the king. He brought in horses from places he's not supposed to build horses or bring horses in. He's a, he builds up huge treasury, amassing wealth for himself. Um, and then you see where this gets to, the culmination, the apex of 1 Kings 11. Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. Why? There's certain things that God's people are not to associate with. God gives those to them, not to withhold good things from them, but for their good because he loves us. Why were they not to associate with them? Well, because they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. What are some of the warnings in the New Testament of things that will turn your heart away from God? Uh, do not love this world or the things of this world, because then the love of God will not be in you. Love of money, the root of all kinds of evil. We could go into lots of things, lots of warnings. Um, Things that you say, oh, I can handle this. Solomon thought he could handle it. And what happened? Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives. I mean, this gets ridiculous, but he got there one at a time. One little compromise at a time. 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. He turned his wellspring away. From God. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his word. With our whole heart we must seek him. Let us not wander from his commandments. What did Solomon do? His heart got turned, he wasn't seeking God. He neglected some commandments. He was pursuing others. And over time, his heart was completely turned away. And by the end of the story of 1 Kings, he's actually killing prophets who are warning him. Do you see what's happening? And what's the outcome? How did his son do? What was the outcome on his home? Well, they turned away. His heart turned to false gods. His children did not love God. Failure at discipline one, destroy discipline two. What was Solomon's ministry? He was king of Israel, God's people. Uh, what was the effect on the nation? Well, within a generation, the kingdom was ripped in two, inundated with idolatry, and finally God's people were marched out of their promised land to exile in chains. Little compromises that Solomon was certain he could handle, poisoned the well, and all that flowed from it. Solomon knew Proverbs 4.23 better than we do. He wrote it. But guarding your heart is much more than knowing the command. Guarding your heart is much more than being excited or using heart, guard your heart lingo. 
you must actually do it. Just because I'm up here teaching on heart guarding doesn't mean I'm safe. I must go out from here and do it for the sake of my heart, for the glory of God, for the sake of my home, my children, and my church. God has given us a new heart. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and he commands and enables us to guard our hearts above all else, with all diligence, with all vigilance. Christian, you were saved by God's grace, and you will only guard your heart by God's grace. So recognizing the importance of the tasks and that the stakes are eternally high, as you diligently guard your heart, depend on grace. You started by grace. You will only be finished by grace. Right? This Christian life isn't something where God changes your heart from the beginning and then says, you do it. No. Um, all through, from beginning to end, it's all of grace. Our new heart was created by God and it will only be sustained by God. Don't do this by your own power. Pray. Depend on God as you pursue God. God isn't interested in religion. The result of this shouldn't be, oh, I need to make sure my life looks good, that I'm keeping all the rules. Merely. He's about heart change through the cleansing of the cross that comes and is sustained by seeking him through his word as we flee sin. So Christian, I want to ask you a question. How well have you been guarding your heart? Well, if a city was asking that question, well, how well have we been guarding our water? What would they do? They might test the water. How oh, is there poison in this? What's the result downstream? They might monitor their water supply for evidence of poison. So Christian, you too should evaluate what's flowing from your wellspring to see how the source is. This is the point of core questions. Your small group does this. It says, what would be normal in the life of a Christian? Well, I'm interacting with God's word and I'm being affected by it. What, what's God revealing to you in, your, in his word and how is it changing you? You're going to be praying. How are you seeing God answer prayer? You're going to be evangelizing. Uh, how is God using you in the process of evangelism? And you're going to be seeing sin, and you're going to be repentant of it. What sins is God revealing to you? And what does repentance look like? You see these questions, it's, it's all about God at work in you. Where you don't have answers to those questions, or maybe other questions that you should set up as well, and that's really the point of the homework. Um, I give you some questions, and, then, um, and that's on the looking day by day, the water purity questions, core questions, these questions, they are a means of assessing what's going on in this water that flows from your heart. You don't say, oh yeah, I'm reading my Bible every day. I must be good. No, well, what's, what's coming out of your heart that might reveal that you've not been guarding it well or might reveal an opportunity? Um, questions like, do you usually sense a presence or absence for God? Do you have an appetite, a desire for God's word? If you read God's word without a desire for God's word, 
there's a mismatch there. There's an opportunity not merely for obedience and setting your eyes before God's word, but in repenting and realigning your desires. Are you daily shepherding your heart to God and his word? Do your daily routines, entertainment choices, internet use, free time, priorities reflect that you're guarding your heart above all else? How do your prayers reflect the vigilance with which you're guarding your heart? What do you see in your life typically turns your heart away or is luring your heart away? How diligently are you, do you flee this? What safeguards, sentries, watchtowers have you set up in your life? Accountability with your spouse, uh, getting rid of means of sin, making obedience easy. Um, how are you doing on that? Your homework is, is to answer those as well as come up with two or three other questions. Not last minute jot them down questions, but I really want you to consider this. If, if you're going to check, do heart period checks, look at what's flowing out of the wellspring, what are some questions that will accurately reveal? What are going to be the most humiliating questions to reveal sin? Because you want that. Because if, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful. And because of Christ's death, he is just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, we're not doing these questions. We're not guarding our heart merely to make ourselves look better. Not at all to make ourselves look better. That's like what the Pharisees did, right? They're like, I want to make sure that nobody can see what's going on in my heart. You're like, no, I want to see what's going on in my heart so I can confess it and repent from the heart and actually live out this new heart that God has given me to honor him in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's called you. C.J. Mahaney wrote, I love this quote. He says, we study our hearts in the shadow of the cross as a means of protecting our hearts from the daily presence and opposition to sin. If you don't watch, you will inevitably weaken. And if you study your heart oblivious to the cross, your study and your effort will devolve into pharisaical heart, or pharisaical heart-neglecting, behavior-focused religion. But if you study it in the shadow of the cross, you know, it was by grace I was saved. God, you gave me this new heart. God, let me honor you and pursue you with this new heart that you've given me. So, if you see evidence that you haven't been guarding your wellspring, go back to the wellspring. No leapfrogging. No cleaning the pipes while dirty water flows through. No whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. No take aim at the heart. Guarding our hearts from sin to God. And if you see evidence of the Holy Spirit, which you will, I'm not, these questions ought not merely reveal sin. They ought to reveal God at work in you. Don't be proud. If you answer any of these questions, if you go to small group and you share, here's what God's been teaching me in his word. Here's how God's been using me in evangelism. And you view pride, you have pride in yourself in that? No, I'm not going to boast in anything except God. That is evidence that God 
that his work in the cross have been applied to you. You've been changed from the heart. Worship him. So let's guard these new hearts together. I'll pray and we're dismissed. God, thank you. Even that word thank you seems so insufficient. And even, God, when we're at our best, our thankfulness, our ability to see just how glorious you are and just how amazing your work on the cross applied to our hearts is falls so far short of reality. God, I can't wait till I am in an unmixed condition and, and just have the capacity to worship you and thank you better. But for now, we'll be content to say thank you. And God, please let us live today and then tomorrow and every day until we see you as you are. Above all else, guarding these new hearts that you provided us at the cost of your son's blood. God, I pray that we would be holy, more holy, that we would honor you better. God, that our hearts would be more and more and more daily molded like you and less and less and less inclined to fall for these lies of sin. And I pray that as we do that individually, we would encourage each other within our home and then corporately in the church to do these things together. We are dependent on you for this. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.